If you want to be in the elite chef world in a city like New York City, you're going to pay for it. You're going to have to go get it. You know, no one's handing it to you. And you're tested by your staff. You're tested by your clientele. You're tested by the critics. And you've got to test yourself. So you need to be ready. And I loved it. But my edge was I was very creative and I had no fear of failure. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Chef David Burke, award-winning chef, restaurateur, culinary pioneer, and inventor. Welcome to the show, Chef David. All right. Nice to be here. Well, Chef, let's jump in like we always do. What was your first job that made you fall in love with hospitality? Well, you know, I was a dishwasher. I was a dishwasher in a hotel, in my hometown. You know, it was a, it was just a uh, high school job and it was in a pretty good kitchen. When I look back, you know, it was a, it's a Sheraton at the time and the food was really good and it was exciting and the camaraderie was good. And even though I was a dishwasher, it felt like I was part of creating those meals. That's awesome. And so I know a lot of people that we've talked to, they're all leaders in their company started as dishwashers. So it's amazing to see that you were as well, but looking back, I know there's a story you told that I found that I think is pretty special for people listening is there was a gentleman named Jose you were working with and you were in high school, maybe came in a little too much partying and he kind of, uh, gave you a story. Can you touch on that and how maybe that guided you into get into culinary school? Well, he was, uh, when I was a dishwasher and I had a couple of prep cook jobs, et cetera, and I couldn't really land a cook job and no one wanted to teach me. So I finally get a job with this guy at a country club. His name was Jose. He had to be about 30. I was about 17 and uh, maybe he wasn't even 30. And uh, he was desperate for broiler cook. So I interviewed with him. Huge country club, still around, beautiful one. And he's like, listen, just go up to the manager, tell him you're, you know, you're, you're broiler cook, not a prep cook. And I'll teach you. Because I begged him to teach me. I said, just teach me. I can do it. I said, no one wants it. I can't get from making salads to being a line cook unless someone's going to take the time to break me in, right? Mm -hmm. so we, 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 I agreed to go up and basically lie to the manager and tell him I was a uh, chef said, just tell him you were, don't tell him you're a prep cook. We don't need a prep cook. 
Anyway, so I did, and he taught me a lot. And he, the more he gave me, the more he did. The more he gave me, the more he did. And I was really good. I had. He said it. He goes, "You got hands. You know the hand-eye coordination. You know people don't realize when you're working a line, you have to be coordinated. You have to be. You have to have rhythm. You know you have to. It's like a sport. You know it's like you know if you're busy on a broiler on a grill, you got to you know you you got to manage a lot with your body and your mind at the same time. And I had I could do it. And then uh, you know I came in one day." I was out all night drinking or something and I was getting sick by the broiler and I wanted to go home. <laughs> it's like, I said, chef, you know, I don't feel good. I'm going to go home. He goes, he goes, you're not coming home. He goes, you don't feel good. Cause you, it's, it's your own doing. He, so he, there was two broilers. We only used one for lunch. So he put, turned on both of them high and pulled that. He gave me a five pound like pail to puke in. And he said, you stand here all day. <laughs> and then he explained why he did it because he explained his situation about how he, you know he thought that it was an opportunity not to pass up and not take for granted the job I had and the, and the opportunities that lay ahead of me if I was to be focused. And then he had got sidetracked because he got his wife pregnant when he was my age and he couldn't go to school. He didn't want to see something like that happen to me. So basically that was it. Yeah, so shout out to Jose, wherever he's at, getting you on track there. Well, you know what's great about Jose? He, he lives not far from me, but he uh, later on, the culinary school, the, the country club sent him to the CIA. And I happened to see him up there that day because I was making a commencement speech, and I saw him up at the school as a you know, as a continuing ed student. And then we were hugging, so I invited him to the dinner that night. So, so his dream came true anyway, so it's good. That's awesome, yeah. man. So as you're coming up, how were your parents about you working in the kitchen at that age, like in high school and doing that? Was that something they were cool with or is that you just like want to take money? Well, my mom worked in a hotel. That's why I got the job. So that's how I got in. And my cousin was the dishwasher. Well, her cousin, my older guy, 10 years old. He was like dishwasher, kind of a hippie Vietnam vet guy. And some of the guys like that were in the kitchen. You know, they were like you know, 30 years old. I was 15, 16, whatever it was. So my mom liked me working there, but she knew everybody. And my dad was like, you know, I just thought it was a, a cook you know, job. When I told my dad I want to be a chef, he was crazy pissed, like, you know, upset. Yeah. Man, we we got to convince you that this is not a good move. You know, you, you, you know, I was a smart kid. I graduated high school in three years, which led me to work a full year as a cook before I went to the CIA. But it was not, listen, when you look back, it was not a career choice back then. Being a, a chef was not even a profession until 1977 or 78. It was really a service industry job, like being a janitor or a maid or a utility person. And that's what it was looked at. It was, a certain, it was called a service job. Uh, custodial, basically, something like that, a food and beverage or a food, food service. Cafeterias, things like that. So we've come a long way in 50, 45 years or so from since then, or 40. So, uh, but it was a struggle for me to convince him that this is what I wanted to do. But... I had no idea what lie I had. I just wanted to be creative and run my own kitchen and, and basically not be a nine to fiver. You know, yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be in an office. I didn't, I didn't really know what an office was, but I knew that there was something about being in the kitchen that was exciting and different every day and teamwork. It was like not working. It was to me, it was like not working. It was like, you're building stuff. It's like hanging. You know, when we were kids, we hung out in the woods and we built tree houses, right? That, that's not really work. 
<laughs> while you're lugging wood from from half a mile and climbing trees. That to me, being in a kitchen has never been about physical labor. It's hard, but it's never. I never look at them at you know. There's been times when I said it's a drag, yes, but yeah. never have I uh, hated my career. Well, I know as a high school kid, you were pretty tough. You were a wrestler. You were an athlete. But you're in this kitchen with grown men, right? You're you're a kid. What was that like? The kind of eye, wise, kind of wide open when that was happening. Well, you know what? I had, I had listen. I had my mother who worked there. I had my yep. her cousin who was in the kitchen. So I had a buffer. Nobody really. All right. Uh, I was a likable guy. You know, I was uh, quiet back then. I did, and I worked. I was a hard worker. My dad, you know, I always worked around the yard. I liked working. And I like to do a good job. So and I kept my mouth shut and then I was very respectful to others. So, you know, I was a pretty, you know, and I did a good job. I wasn't lazy. You know, I had to, I couldn't be lazy in my house. My dad was like, <laughs> I, mean, I, was like I was the oldest too. So I had to do things, take out the garbage, cut the lawn, help fix the car, do this, thing. you know, whatever, what, whatever he said, I did. Whether I knew how to do it or not, that was just go do it. You figured it out. I said, yes, sir. I'm on it. Like, go ahead. Go up on a roof and fix the antenna because the TV's broken. I'm like it's snowing out. He's like, "Good, you won't hurt yourself if you fall asleep." <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, so good. So I see you, you were able to handle yourself in there. You decided to go to culinary school. How was that step? Was that straight out of high school that you went there, or did you go to college well, first? I, I, like I said, I got a, I had a full year of working with Jose and others. As my senior year, I didn't go to school. I, I did. I got my diploma. But I had like a work study program, which was kind of illegal, but they, they let it happen because I was, I had a varsity letter as a wrestler. So I had my phys ed, I had all my other credits. So they kind of, you know, you're supposed to go four years of phys ed, four years of something else. I forget. So they kind of like, because I applied for the Culinary Institute of America as a junior, they let me not go senior. So that was super helpful for my career because by the time I got to the culinary school, I already worked in a really good place couple of really good places. So I wasn't just out of high school at work and some like some of my classmates that worked at TGI Fridays or Ground Round or something like that. So I, I actually knew food and I knew how to butcher and I knew how to work the line and I knew how to puke in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and so was it easy for you when you got there or did you learn things that you really well, didn't know? Well, CIA was not easy back then. Uh, there were some classes I would, that were easier for me. Most of the cooking classes were easier. Uh, but, you know, sanitation, nutrition, wine classes, those things didn't interest me that much. Uh, but I still did good. I did good as that. I, I was the most likely to succeed candidate when I graduated. And as I, uh, you know, I, I took school seriously. You know, I, I was into it. I was, I was always, I still into it. I love this career. I like the opportunity that it affords. And there's, Every day it has a new opportunity. It doesn't, you don't really get to be finished. You know, you know even if you're the CEO of your own company or you own your restaurant, you, you, you still have things to learn. You turn a corner and there's something new. You know, you're designing something, you're working on a new dish, you're fixing something, you're mentoring, you're teaching, you're buying a bakery, now you're in the bakery business, you know, things like that. So there's always another branch of something happening. Or like I'm working on, I want to learn how to make, I want to do sushi myself now. So tired of ordering. I want to go work behind the sushi counter and learn. I hate not knowing how to do things, at least yeah. a little bit. So I can get back there and just make, if worse comes to worse, somebody, guy doesn't show up, I can at least do something. 
Yeah, with your creativity, I would love to try some of that sushi. You got you to let us know gotta, when you're ready. You got to make the time, you know, and that's time is really the most precious commodity. That's what it is. Because we'll going back to time and getting out of culinary school, you start traveling with your time. How does that happen? Do you have to find them and find these, you know, iconic chefs you work with around Europe or do they know you're in the culinary school and they find you? Well, or how does that work I'm back then? The, I got, I had a, a chef in school I thought hated me so hard on me and then he recommended me the last couple of weeks of school i had a job fair he recommended that i work in a, in a for a very wealthy family in norway which got me a ticket to europe so i was i was hired by this family that usually hired a french chef from cordon bleu they decided to go american they had rest they, got, they had businesses in greenwich connecticut anyway i went to oslo worked so you like you were like 21 uh 20 yeah. 20 so 20 year old Heading to Norway. Okay. Well, I went to, I told my dad I was moving to Norway. And he was like, what exit? Said. <laughs> yeah. I said, that. but I went, so I got to Norway. I worked there for the summer. And then I went on a, uh, I took a month off and went all through Europe on a train. So, which was great. So I went to Italy, went to Germany, went to France, Holland, Belgium, and then back up to Scandinavia to get my airline ticket back. But the, the, the beauty of it is I wasn't afraid to move back there and work in one of the other countries in a restaurant because I realized that the language barrier wasn't that great. You know, I mean, I could do it. I could get in the kitchen and learn how to work without speaking French. Mm -hmm. and I went to school in France without speaking French to learn pastry because you, basically we, we visualize and you translate and you, you know, you, it's a look-see kind of, you can translate a recipe once you have it, but it's really the technique you're there to learn. It was hard because, of, you know, you get picked on a bit too if you're – I was a good cook when I went to pastry school, but I wasn't a pastry person. And I was working in great restaurants. And, uh, you know, when you don't have a language barrier, you might not understand what they say to do. I'll say, oh, do this, and you think it's that. You was deal it like, hey, was it, hey, the American boy's here. You yeah, know, let's put him uh, to do all they, the hard work. They give you the tasks they don't want to do too. So you just do it and then you, you know, you make sure you're doing well and you continue to work and then you, you, you thank them for the opportunity because basically you're working for free and it's another part of schooling. You know, yep. you're in the best, if you go in the best restaurants in the world and you can even get in there for three, four, five weeks to learn and not have to pay them. That's great. But a lot of people wouldn't do that. You know, you live in a youth hostel, you got to save money. You know, you're eating ham and cheese sandwiches every day. You're eating at the restaurant, of course. But, you know, it takes a lot of guts to go out and do that when you look back at it, to just uproot yourself and move to a country, whether you're male or female, more so with a female, I think. When you, when you just go and live in a, a, small, a small room in a, in a small hotel for three months, you know, in, in a foreign country and just to learn. I and mean, there's a dedication there. There's a, there's a desire to be great. You work with a bunch of different chefs when you're there. I'm not going to ask like who your favorite, but you're all different styles that you were learning. Was there one that really stuck out? To like, wow, this is one that, you know, I well, really I can tell you that when I worked with George Blanc, it was very organized and uh, meticulous, and he's a very soft-spoken, wonderful guy. And his kitchen is run, family kind of run, very smooth. And uh, and then I worked with Tuagro, the two brothers. In a super modern kitchen, more nouvelle cuisine-ish, just more, uh, but regimented. And the guys there, they worked, you know, you worked split shifts and they played soccer in the afternoon. They weren't the friendliest batch. 
a very competitive. And even within that kitchen, they were competitive. But but the food was avant garde. And then I worked with Mark Minot, who was the meanest mean guy that <laughs> liked me. And but you wouldn't know they you know, sometimes the mean guys you don't realize that they they're mean because they like you. they they they're spending time with you. If they didn't like it, they wouldn't even give you the time of day. But his creativity was beyond. And he was more I would have to say he was more original, and he had his, some of his ideas were just brilliant. Him and George Blanc. And I became friendly and we would visit. George and I worked on Holland, uh, on Singapore Airlines together. And Mark Minot came to the U.S. for a couple of weeks years ago. And came, you know, we went out to dinner together, came to the restaurant, had him in my convertible. But we had a, we had a couple of nights that were that were hair, hair uh, curling. And, uh, and it was a joy to have been able to, to reciprocate what he taught me. Even though when I was a young kid, they would, myself included, they would never think I would become a well-known chef. But it started with their help. Learning is if you keep learning, I mean, like, you know, you keep learning. I work for this guy, Pierre Hermé, a great pastry chef at Fauchon. He doesn't, I don't know if he realizes I was in that kitchen because we see tons of uh, uh, students coming through. But I'll remember because I was in awe of these people. You know, they might see 100 students like I train 100 cooks. Right. Cooks remember you. And if you do ever hit it big or you want to drop a note, it's always appreciated, right? I mean, I get calls in the middle of the night sometimes. Some guy got three stars. He calls me up drunk from St. Louis or <laughs> Idaho or San Francisco. And like, hey, chef, I got three. You know, I opened my rest, so I got three stars. You fired me, but I love you, Papa. Better <laughs> <laughs> love right, that. Enjoy it. So you're, you're traveling Europe. You're, you're called back home or you decide to come back home. And I went back home and I worked for Wildy Maloof, uh, who was at La Cobas. We worked at a very good French restaurant up in the, outside of New York. I worked two years with him. And I, every, everybody that worked there, the waiters and the rest of the cooks, except for me and him, were Belgium and French. So the, the language that was spoke there in the kitchen was French, except for me and him. And it was a really famous country French restaurant owned by the guys who owned La Caravelle in New York. And, uh, I honed my skills there and I learned the classic cuisine of French food, like La Cote Basque did at the time. Then I left and worked to New York City to work for Daniel Malud at the Hotel Plaza Athene when it opened in 84, late 84, or summer of 84. Spent several months working with him, got through the holidays, and then the, the chef, while well, Charlie Palmer called me to be the sous chef at the River Cafe because I hadn't met Charlie more mm-hmm the French restaurant in the country. He was a, he was working at a country club. So the river cafe sous chef job took precedent over the fish cook job with Danielle and I jumped ship. And that was two years with Charlie within those two years of a sous chef. I went to France and worked for those great people. And then, uh, I was going to open Oriole with charge Charlie, but they offered me the job at the river cafe to stay, which I took the job only if I could stop for six months and learn pastry which is how I got over to pastry school in Paris, paid for by the owner of the River Cafe. When I came back in 87, 88, I was fresh out of pastry school, took over the River Cafe for Charlie Palmer. He went to open Oriole, and I spent another five years as the chef of the River Cafe until 92. And I represented the United States and the Olympics in Tokyo in 88. We won the Olympics. I also got several good reviews, created it my own style, more importantly than anything else. In 92, went to open the Park Avenue Cafe with 
the founder of TJ Fridays, Smith and Walensky, Alan Stillman, spent 10 years with Alan. We opened a slew of restaurants together, steakhouses and fine dining. I went public, made some money. Then I opened a David Burton Donatella on the Upper East Side with a girl, a woman named Donatella Paya. Hit a grand slam. So that was your first, right? So I want to unpack something. Yeah. yeah. So I want to come back to when you first become exec chef at the River Cafe. That was your first executive chef role, right? Yeah, it's a a pretty big one to me. Right. And so I'm curious because you're a young gun, right? 24, 25, 26 when you win the three stars from New York Times. But what was that like to become a leader of men and women in that kitchen when you're a young guy and you've never been head of the chef? I was the sous chef there. It made it a little easier. Mm -hmm. But I had left and Charlie was leaving and he was taking his crew and Larry Ford Joe was before Charlie. So there were th- I had fear, fear, and like fear is a good motivator for me. I don't like to fail. So when mm-hmm. I have fear, man, I get I get really anxious and I get and I get moving. <laughs> you know, yes. I figure it out. I don't like to be boxed into a corner, so I'm a fighter. And I uh I figured it out. So I got the pastry down pat. I knew how to run a kid. I didn't know how to order all the food correctly. I didn't know all of that stuff, but that was taken care of. I let the stuff I didn't know bother me. And then I, and the owner was like, the stuff you do know is why we're giving you the job. Not, we're not giving you the job because of the stuff you don't know. We want, we think what you do know is a head and shoulders above anybody else. And he goes, the reason you're getting the job is because the rest of the staff told me you deserve the job and you can do this. So oh, that's awesome. So we did it. And I was shocked because I used to yell and scream at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because that was old school chef. Yeah. Right. But, but we, you know, but the results were backed up. And yeah. uh, so were yeah. you doing stuff that the owner did not like, or was he like, Hey man, you have full control in this kitchen. We, you know, Buzz O'Keefe gave us full control. He did edit somewhat. He never told us you had to do this or that, but he, he was way ahead of his time. He was all about getting the best peach when the best peach was available. He kept, he would always say, you know, you don't need to put sauce on a good steak. And he was right. But trying to tell a young culinary guy back then, you can't put steak sauce on a steak or you can't serve far ground. You can't, I remember throwing a shit fit because I couldn't make my own ice cream. Think about it now. I don't want to make my own ice cream. I, yeah. I, but back then, you know, we had to do, in order to get three stars, you had to be with the elite. You had to work that way. You had to want to do things. I mean, we had a pastry menu with 24 desserts. 24 desserts. We had the best pastry program in the city. And I was a kid. And I, But you know what? I, I was tireless. And I would drive people. I could get 150% out of anybody be, just by by motivating them. And that that's, that's, a, there's a skill there, encouraging them and telling them that they can do this. Like I would challenge people and say, listen, you got to make a hundred chocolate butterflies. I said, you can do this. And they're like, well, I, I never did it. I said, well, I said the guy, but the first guy that made chocolate butterflies never did it either. I mean, <laughs> I said, you got to start. And, and the pride that they would take when they put that final chocolate butterfly on top of the dessert was like, and then you got them. They, you know, a student, when you teach people, it's better than paying them almost. Got to pay people. But when you teach somebody a little something every day and they're getting better, they take that home with them and knowledge is power and they, and they feel it. They feel and it. You, and you said you started developing your style there, like really come yeah. into your own. Was there something that stands out in your mind? Like, man, I got something here. Like this. Well, is, you know what it was? It. We, we were doing, we, we had the best view in the world of, for a restaurant. Right? So what I started doing was presenting food architecturally and getting so we were doing instagram food before instagram we would we would we would we were saying look at me man look at me on a plate don't look in your lover's eyes look at this food this is 
this is a new guy in the kitchen. This is what we do. And, then, you know, and I, you got to look at it. For me to take my creme brulee recipe, and it's the same one that Charlie Palmer has and the same one that Larry, how is mine going to stand out? I have to prove to people that I'm better or that I'm worthy. So what do I need to do? I need to outstyle, outthink, get up earlier, stay out later, whatever it may be. And I got to drive. I have to prove that I am worthy. I don't have to just, I don't want to just take the job because I got the job. I want to leapfrog above this job. I want this job. To, I don't want the guy coming after me to ever be as good. I'm swinging for the fences. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I look back at some of the pictures from when you were in that restaurant. They still hold up. Yeah. Across they, the board. Well, we were way ahead of our time. And I really, I look back now and laugh because I had such fear of critics. And I laugh at a critic. Yep. Laughed at the fact that they thought they had so much power. I mean, yes, you can learn, and we all needed editing as we were growing and we were younger, and we made some mistakes. But for someone to try to slam you for the effort that's being made by the what they call the man in the arena, the person doing the work, taking the chances, putting in these hours. Some some are very good writers, and some just don't get it. But you know. The expert is the person that is working in the field, not the person that's pointing out what's gone bad or what's gone wrong. Now, yes, you'll make mistakes. If you're smart, you'll read them and you'll edit them and you'll learn from them. And then there's times where there's this nonsensical crit criticism. But back then, you, you, you were a review was very important to you and your career. So you had that, you know, you'd work 100 days in a row, wait for that critic to come in and the, the pressure. That go is involved with being a high-powered chef or running a high-powered restaurant. It, you put a lot of it on yourself, but it's built in. If you want to be in the elite chef world in a city like New York City, you're going to pay for it. You're going to have to go get it. You know, no one's handing it to you, and you know, and you're tested by your staff, you're tested by your clientele, you're tested by the critics, and you've got to test yourself. So you need to be ready. And I loved it. But my edge was I was very creative and I had no fear of failure. I wasn't afraid to get laughed at or make a mistake. And I think that's important when, uh, when you try to be creative. You've got to understand basics and more than the basics. You have to master the classics and why certain things go together well and understand why the classic cuisine is built this way and what ingredients go with each other from a seasonal standpoint, a geographic standpoint, a, di a, a digestive standpoint, a visual, a textural, a season, all that stuff. And when you do understand that, then it's e a little easier to get uh, the paintbrush to the canvas. No, I love it. And you mentioned something about the critics, right? So at 26, you did get a critic that loved you, gave you three stars in the New York Times, right? Yeah, yeah. So is that when you became like the young stud in New York City and people started calling you like, hey, we want you to come with us? Is that kind of what kicked it off? Well, people came, man. One of the interesting things is I have that review framed is that was the first time in the history of the New York Times that they ever put a photo with the review. It was uh -huh. a black photo and it was a chocolate butterfly. That's why I use that, that analogy. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. I got to go back and look. It was 1988, and it was May or March. And, and they, then the following week, they, they used the picture again. But I was the first picture. Oh, here it is. That's awesome. I love that you have that framed. That's so cool. And now it's a three-star review. It's not the best review in the world, but it's three stars, and it's got the photo. Now, I made those chocolate butterflies, and I, that was. And people were like, what a pain in the ass it is. I said, it makes a difference. Trust me, when people see it, it's, 
And that was the butterfly that when I won the Tokyo Olympics, the, they asked us to explain what we made. And I, I made this chocolate dessert with a log cabin, maple ice cream, represented maple represented the U.S. A log cabin with Abe Lincoln. And it had this little homestead thing on the plate. It had the butterfly that represented freedom in America. And people were like, this is it. And that was it. So you run around with that review in your kitchen. See, I told you guys. No, I, 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 moved, uh, I brought this because I'm writing a book. I had to show my uh, the writer within a book on my career and my journey. And I uh, was telling him that the other day. So I just happened. That's usually in my office upstairs. I had it down here because uh, we were discussing it. So. Well, I love I got to see it. But I'm so. glad I framed it. And that's the original newspaper. That was May, New York Times, May 6, 1988. Wow. Time flies, man, you see, but you're still continue on this journey. So you're now the young chef that's crushing it. 92 comes around. Like you mentioned, you go to the Park Avenue Cafe. How does that come on? They come calling you or are you looking for yeah, they, they called me. They called me and I was going to make, I was going to do a restaurant with True Near Pro and Robert De Niro. It's time to move on. And uh, then Alan Silver called me with that location. We made a smart deal. It was a great move because he taught me business and marketing. And taking chances, man. This guy took chances. This guy, he took, he did advertising, marketing. He, he had big cojones and he put his money where his mouth is. I learned a lot from him in that organization. We opened steakhouses, traveled the country. <clears throat> and uh, that was, a, that was, it wasn't fine. It wasn't the, it wasn't three star Michelin company. Mm -hmm. It could have went that route and easily got there, in my opinion. But the business aspect of it and the, uh, you know, listen, got me enough money to start my own company. And that's all that matters. And that happened in 92. So we had a great run and I, I taught them a lot and they taught me a lot. And that's, that's a win-win. Man, Smith and Walensky is a, you know, it's still a great brand name and you had a big part in that. The one here on Miami beach, I go to still all the time. All open. That was place. when we opened. That was the hardest opening in my career. Why is that? It's just, I'm a Miami guy. Why was that so hard? Well, it was 700 people. Mm -hmm. Opening night, no air conditioning in September. The Miami Dolphins, Nick Bonacani Foundation was coming in, 700 people. All of them had raw bar. We had no power all day. And I had three broken ribs from the night before out on Collins Avenue where some bouncer was an off-duty cop. I guess he decided I looked like a guy that beat his ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens on Saturday. You know what? Once in a while. Yeah. It goes on, man. I got up and went in, three broken ribs. I learned something. I learned that you never tell a cop that he hits like your sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm crying over here. Listen, I'm crying. You can't see I it, but I'll come What a great, and that's an iconic location. It's still, it's still great. This day. So we got our power at 4.30. We had to buy ice blocks and grind them down at Buffalo Chop for the ice for the seven, 700 people, 70 raw bar towers. That's how much prep that it, and it was brutally hot. And you know what? Back then, there weren't a lot of people to steal from. We we didn't have a cracker jack stand. I mean, no. you had Joe's and you had the Forge and you had a couple hotels and a couple of those uh, uh, Mango Gang guys had restaurants like Robin Oss and uh, Mark Militello and uh, Alan Susser. Yep. Alan, yeah, those guys were down there, but there wasn't a lot else down there to, to get from. But but what an experience. What yeah, an Alan what an iconic restaurant still. So the pork shank, so the pork shank I put on the menu. And when I first put that pork shank on the menu, when we opened Maloney and Porcelli, the, the 
executive team that I worked for is Alan Stillman and his business partners were like, nah, we don't think the pork should go on the menu. No one's going to order pork in New York. And I hit the roof. I was at a, I was so passionate about this dish. Well, I, you know, basically I had, I, you know, I, I was slamming things around and Alan, the smart guy he is, he's like this, he, he laughs. He goes, Dave, if you want it on the menu, we'll put it on the menu for a month. If it doesn't sell, it's okay to take it off the menu. I'm like, fair enough. Deal. Right? Yeah. With best dish in America. <laughs> best dish in America, a pork dish in USA Today. Number two dish is John George or Thomas Keller or Daniel Balloon. Number one, DB's pork shank. The one that nobody said no one's going to like. I was like, that's why you got to. You, that's where the critic doesn't count. That's when, you know, I know what I want. I, now I was in Germany. I saw these people lining up eating Weinhoxens, and I'm like, I'm putting this on a menu. And I, I, you know, I did a little French technique, and I put it with jalapeno applesauce, made it a little bit Latin, a little bit modern. Man, is it good. And it was not. Yeah, and I've had it, and it's amazing. So I, I didn't know that story where they're like, no, you cannot have this. <laughs> well, you know, I could have just said, okay, you're right. And I, I did. I, but, you know, sometimes you got to. Fight for what you think is right, even though it's just plate food. It's not a plate of food. It's a culture shift, right? It's it's you know we're here to educate, and you know we can't if it doesn't sell. Okay, you take it off, but let's try things. Let's give it a shot. Let's be different. Let's dare to be different. I love it. So you crush it with Smith and Lenska. You do your openings. You make some money, and then you get to your first restaurant that you mentioned. And this is another part I always like to find out because that's very different than working from somebody. Now you're the guy. Now, right. you know, now you're not working 80 hours a week. You're working 100. Right. So what was that like opening your first place? Was it just like you were in it, looking for the perfect spot the whole time? No, well, I had here because I needed to get it open. I had the, using my own money, had my partner's money. We put up, I don't know, 400K each or something like that. And then we didn't make money for a couple. You know, we had to, still had bills. We built it. Beautiful restaurant. Very creative, the food. And I had sous chefs that were coming back to me saying, I just want to be part of your restaurant. I worked the line. And so everybody in the kitchen was a sous chef or a chef. There was no, there was no beginners. And it was just shift pay. And we partied and cooked and yelled. It was like the Oakland Raiders, I guess, in the kitchen. It was like this bad boy team of people that I had fired or had falling out. Or, but they didn't cook. They could cook. It was like, you know, and they were like. Just the renegades. It was the renegades. And we got it open. Huge hit. And then we started printing money, making, doing well. I had the smoking limousine outside. We had these beautiful, we had the whimsical dishes. You know, that's when the style got, because it wasn't as, Park F Cafe was really busy. And so was Smith Walensky restaurant. Now I had a 90, 100 seat restaurant. And the food was just. I wish I could see it today. Some of the dishes were just like, and the design, and I was working the front of the house and the back, and we were taking the Cirque's business. It was great. Yeah, you're just winning. And we you're did doing like 10 years, and that ran its course. And then, you know, opened Bloomingdale's, a few other stuff, opened the best steakhouse in Chicago, dot, 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 fast forward, you know, wrote books, did TV. And, uh, what I want to get into, right? Because you you got this awesome restaurant. When do you start adding restaurants? Right, so you opened well, this in 2003. Two years after it was open, bought out Donatella because I needed to expand the staff too. And we were we were butting heads a little bit. 
So I brought in a different partner and then we expanded to Chicago, a few others. That relationship ended not well. With the new partner or with Donna? Oh, yeah, they did new partner. We were trying, you know, we expanded, but it wasn't, there was two different visions. He wanted to spend more money and I wanted to make more money. He wanted to, you know, so we, we can go back and forth on what happened. But, you know, then they tried that the company wanted to own my name and I wouldn't let that happen. So we mm-hmm. had, we separated. So we, we, some of it got dissolved. Some of it went to me, some of it went to them. Uh, and, uh, then I started over again and now we're back where I am today. Yeah. And so for like chefs coming up that are owning their place, you know, you take on partners, what advice would you tell them if they're looking for a partner? Cause it's a marriage. What advice would you give? Most chefs didn't go to business school we, and, and we're very trusting and we're entrepreneurial. It's like a marriage, you know, you have to, you got to protect yourself. Now, if it's your first gig and you're, you're making a name for yourself and you're not put up any money, listen, it's the golden rule. Protect your name, protect your brand, know your worth, and that's it. Well, I, the guy who puts up the money is going to have say, or the people, because they're backing you. So you got to work. You got to prove yourself. You know, until you're owning more than half of the business and or this, you really, you're, you're, you know, you got to watch the deal and how it's written. Because you don't want to put all that work into something and just out of a whim have to start over because you can't get And this is a very passionate business. And many, many people don't understand what goes into this business because they think all business is the same. And it's not. The tech yeah. business, the restaurant business are very different, especially when it comes to the type of employees and the hours and the benefits and the pay and the, and the corporate ladder is completely different. And uh, so you got to be careful. It's a great business. If you're going to get in business, make sure you have the buyout clauses and, and have the, and make sure, listen, they can be your friend and your business would have been, you lose your friendship. Yep. Because, you know, there has to be realistic expectations on what the payback's going to be and how, how fast or slow it's going to go. And, uh, and you're going to have to work hard. You, you know, it's not a joke business and it's harder every year. It gets harder and harder for guys like us and girls like us in the restaurant business too keep pivoting. I mean, we just got through a pandemic. Now we're in a recession. Who knows what's next? Yeah. I just keep throwing stuff at us here. And and the younger, there's some really great young culinary people out there that are willing to do whatever it takes and learn and learn and learn like there was, but not as many as there used to be. And I'll explain it to you how I feel. Years ago, it was a blue collar job being a cook. When you started. Yep. Well, yeah, and you, you know, you, you wanted that opportunity and you, you, you would work hard. You didn't count hours. You worked on your day off. You went in early to learn how to butcher a new pastry, whatever that, you know, yeah. And you got chef asked you to stay late. You stay late, work your day off. No problem. You were loyal to him, loyal to the investor or whatever it was. Fast forward, Wolfgang Puck, et cetera, Emerald, Flay, you name it. These guys that are making headlines and TV shows and driving Maseratis and, uh, flying all over and selling pots and pans and cookbooks and this and that. It's very glamorous. And it's a, some people that have made it to the elite level of the, of the food world. Uh, so it looks more appealing and it's sexy, right? Food network is sexy, right? Yeah. So uh, the white collar kid wants to get into the job and the, the white collar parents are like, no problem. Susie knows how to bake. We'll open a bit. <laughs> yeah. Billy, Billy's a, Billy's good. <laughs> He makes bolognese. He loves to cook. We'll put him in school. They get out of school. And then they realize they got to work seven days a week. They got to work 80, 60 hours a week. They can't call in sick. They're going to get fired. They get yelled at. They get blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, you're not getting the caliber of 
employee is not necessarily same. They might be talented, might want to work, but they don't have that hunger that I once saw years ago. Not as many that are coming through the doors. And when we, when the river cafe, we had a line of people out the door. They were willing to work for free just to learn because of what we would do. If people came from Norway, they came from LA, they came from Canada. And I had a house across the street with, I was recently divorced. So I had extra rooms and we would put people up and it was like room and board, baby, get to work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, I'd hire a guy and he'd come interview and it's like his confirmation suit, man. I'm like, that suit doesn't even fit you. (laughs) And I'm like, like, when can you start? He goes right away. I said, how about right now? He says, okay, I'm in. On the line with a, with a, with with his dress shoes, his feet are bleeding, and he's doing a twelve-hour shift. I'm like, you're the best. Well, I don't want to sound like the old guy, and it, you know, I had to walk uphill to school, but I'm the old guy that walked uphill to school. Yeah, and you're part of that transition too. You came in like that right time, right? I was part of the wine and food festival here in Miami Beach a lot, with yeah. the, with the TV and all this. You know, I was worked at the Lowe's Miami Beach Hotel, and I, I saw it. all y'all there. The new industry, you got to think about it. There was yep. none of this stuff. If you're a certain age, you saw all the change. You were part of it. Mm-hmm. They didn't have this in the 70s and 80s. It didn't exist. The chefs didn't have cookbooks. I mean, Julia Child did, but she wasn't a restaurant chef. You didn't have food festivals. You didn't have the food network. You didn't have all these culinary schools. You didn't have the respect that the profession has today. And it wasn't cool. See, when I was a kid, if you had a tattoo and a nose ring, you were either a sailor or an ex-con or a biker. You weren't putting pink icing on a cupcake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, so you started getting involved in that a little bit, right? Did you, like, make a choice of, hey, all my guys, I contemporaries are making cookbooks and pots and pans and selling stuff. Did you make a decision? I had a publisher came to me and said, I want to write your cookbook. I love what you do. Yeah, go for it. Bingo, that was my first. I wrote two books. I should have. I'm writing a third book now. It's a storybook about what we're talking about. And it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we and we talk about the pitfalls of the industry, the the, uh, the greatness of it, the excitement of it, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, the you know, the late nights, the drugs, the alcohol, the sexiness of it, and also the tragedies of what goes with anything that is related to nighttime business, nightclub. Uh, drinks or yeah, any mm-hmm. men or celebrity the word celebrity involved in it uh and which is something that should be addressed when when the younger people get into the business i don't think is as rampant as it and you know you got a city like new york city never sleeps what do you do after work you got to go out and wind up right so you wind up you got to just be careful and have a balance in your social calendar as a young person it not we're not taught that as young people it's easy to get drawn into the late night thing. Hopefully you can you, you weather a storm and uh, and not have the personality that takes you a little too far out there. But no, you try for many people, they've they they come and go. They come and go because this is a business that'll eat not only will it eat first of all, it's hard enough to be alive in this business without any distractions because you dedicate so many hours a week to it. I mean the divorce rate is extremely high because of the hours and the dedication and the, and the stress and the stress factor, super high, the suicide, the whole, the whole amount of things that are within the, within the realm of the restaurant business and the dropout rate is tremendous, you know? So, but after, but at the end of the day, I wouldn't change. <laughs> That's true. It's all, it makes for an exciting, uh, I mean, there's never a dull day. Well, now you're, now you've got your, like you said you transitioned, you got rid of your partners, you're doing your thing. 
and you're building your restaurants again. I think the last count was about 20, 20 yeah, restaurants. Yeah, we got about 15 to 16. We 15 could sell things. You know, I don't want to, want to get too far ahead of it, but we have a couple ahead of us big ones. One's in uh, north of Palm Beach in a town called Lake Park. And yep. uh, then we have one in White Plains in New York and another big uh, complex in Jersey. And uh, New York City, we're doing something on Park Avenue in an office building. And uh, uh, I think there's something else out there. But uh, oh, Charlotte, we're doing a pizzeria uh, fast casual concept. Nice. And we're expanding. Yeah, so we're busy. Uh, we bought a bakery. And uh, again, I want to do a cooking school one day and a, and a little, uh, I want to do a reality show here in my house where I have some students living with me for five months as boot camp. And, and they really just learn, they learn from one chef's mentality and lifestyle what I do and what I think they should do to get themselves on the right track to be great at what they want to do. I like it. Burke's boot camp. I'll be watching. I'll yeah. be watching that one. So as you have this company now, you know, you've got a lot of young talent, I'm assuming coming through. Is there, how do you nurture that? Cause imagine having someone like you in your kitchen say, I, I need this pork shank on this menu. Do you have someone like well, that now? Do you well, allow that to happen? We, we do have, we do have, well, there's layers of corporate chefs, Carmine, my big guy, Carmine Di Giovanni, and then we have pastry chefs. And we work with them and we do give them freedoms. I love to see somebody that's feisty about what they put on the menu. And I, we encourage them to send their specials every night. On uh, We have an Instagram page that's collective of all the chefs, a little bit of a competition. And we have a central buyer. So we might buy soft shells for everybody that week or doing something with Shark right now. And then we keep, we keep the ball in the air with the creativity. And if something's really good, we'll put it on the menu. But yes, we don't, uh, we're ultra creative anyway, but I like to see people wanting to put their name on the menu or their dish, but it has to work. Right. That's got to work there. I get it. You know, chef, you've been all over the world. You're opening tons of restaurants. You're getting your third book going. But if you went back to young David, the dishwasher at the Sheraton, if he was starting today as that dishwasher, what advice would you give him if he was starting out today? Different world. I would, you know what, stay focused, read, travel, eat, ask questions, document everything, you know, and it's easy to document now with the iPhones, right? But, but, and always learn, volunteer and learn, go learn something, learn something new every day. If you don't know how to make pizza, don't go make pizza. You know, even the simple thing, you don't know how to make a pump souffle, you know what it is? I know how to do it. I'll teach you because there's certain things that have, that even though, they were in vogue 20 years ago, 20, people don't make them because they're too hard. We tend to move in. And that's what happened with the restaurant business. It used to be about who's going to make the best souffle. Who's going to do the bone out the Dover soles. Who's going to, because those took skill. So instead of tourneying a, a, a carrot now, they just dice it because it's easier. Because you don't need a craft. So you don't need someone skilled in turnt carving vegetables to do it. Now, at the end of the day, does it make that much sense? When you look at the old photos and you see the tournay meds and that looks kind of silly, maybe, or it looks outdated, it doesn't mean it didn't teach you how to carve, how to turn, include a mushroom. So, you know, look back on some older stuff and learn. And if you don't know how to make puff pastry, maybe you don't have to. Maybe you never will, but you should know what's involved, right? Look at macaroons, another one. Learn how to make them. You know, I make cheesecake lollipops. I mean, go butcher a whole fish. Go go to a market. Go go like I said. Um, go make some sushi rice and make some sushi. Make some mistakes. Make mistakes and learn from. Them. That's the only advice I can give. 
And also, all, the other thing is you need to have a outlet and enjoy some life. You can't just work. And I did this. All I did was I was consumed by work. And you need a little bit of an outlet. Everybody, and I found it finally now, it took me decades, where you can, whether it's nature, taking a walk, some people exercise, some people have more family lives, they're busy with, but you need something that, so you can shut off the teapot that we the percolator of what goes through a chef's mind. Yeah, I think that's great advice and a, and a great place to end our conversation. Chef, I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me and our listeners. And I can't wait for your sushi restaurant to open here on South Beach, man. Let's uh, let's get it going here. In my get here soon. I get. Let's get in touch because I'll be in Florida soon. I'll be coming down quite a bit. We're building that place. I would love it. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome. This podcast is a Hospitality.fm production.